Well, would you look at that? I haven't croaked, kicked the bucket, expired, checked out, bought the farm, cashed in, crossed over. I didn't bite the dust, snuff it, pass into the great beyond, expire. I'm not pushing up daisies, resting in peace, or riding off into the sunset. Not yet. So let's do this, shall we? Welcome to episode two. I'm Michael Colville Anderson. Welcome to my happy place. My podcast where I attempt to self-medicate myself against overthinking about impending mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity. These are the 100 things I'll miss when I'm dead. Number 8. Coffee. Now I have my favorite foods and drinks, and so do you. Come to think of it, however, I wouldn't rate coffee as a favorite beverage at all. What coffee is, is the foundation on which I build my day. Every single day. I love the mechanical routine I perform each morning, all groggy and disheveled. Water in kettle. Turn on kettle. Grab mug. Scoop in two teaspoons of instant coffee. Add one half teaspoon of sugar. Stare out window at backyard until kettle goes click. Pour in water. Stir. Wander over to chair, sit down, sip. That first sip is always too hot, but I take it anyway. So do you, probably. Inhaling air along with the coffee to cool it as much as possible. Just needing to get it inside me. I spend a lot of time in hotel rooms around the world, and one of the greatest developments in hotel life over the past few years is the inclusion of a kettle and instant coffee in the room. It is so irritating to have to get dressed and go down to breakfast in order to have a coffee. I keep instant coffee and sugar in my suitcase when I travel, just in case I can't coffee up within two meters of my hotel bed and in under five minutes after waking up. The aroma of coffee is the fried bacon of beverages, accentuated, no doubt, by its addictive qualities. It triggers my desire for it. If someone walks into my bedroom in the morning having made me a cup, it's an alarm clock. I am up. And what a way to wake up, too, with fresh coffee caressing your olfactory receptors. Okay, it would have to be someone I know coming into my bedroom, of course, with whom I'm sharing the bed or something. Otherwise, it would be a bit alarming. I'm no coffee snob. I dig the fact that coffee, like whiskey, wine, or cannabis, is a complex world of origins, strains, flavors, and all that. It just doesn't interest me. I'll drink any of it as long as it's strong. At home, I drink instant coffee, but rest assured, it is the best instant coffee. I like how coffee has always been a social adhesive. We meet for coffee, even if we end up drinking smoothies. For centuries, coffee houses and cafes were the birthplace of ideas, movements, revolutions. The historical and societal impact of coffee is unrivaled by any other beverage. I've never managed to adapt to the habit that they have in North America where they schlep around all day long with huge containers of it. I prefer how, here in Europe, we stop for coffee. It's a time out, a welcome fermata in the music of our day. Be it a slap-in-the-face Italian espresso downed in two gulps while standing at the bar, or a crafted cappuccino to sip while reading the newspaper. Apart from my morning routine, I'll enjoy coffee throughout the day, but never after 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't have any idea why. There are exceptions, of course. A nice espresso after a good meal at a restaurant, or in the early evening at a bar, if it looks like I might be out a bit late. 
The aroma might be the fried bacon of beverages, but coffee itself is the booty call, or whatever the gender-neutral word for that is these days. But it's always there when you need it, ready to give you a thrill and satisfaction. Number nine, winter bathing. If you don't live in the Nordic countries and you hear winter bathing, you might be wondering why taking a bath in the winter would be a special event. What I'm talking about here is stripping off my clothes and going against all my defensive instincts by immersing myself in icy seawater on purpose. It's basically the same thing I do in all the other seasons, but when the temperature drops and it takes place in the winter months, it has its own name in Northern Europe. Winter bathing. It's a badge of honor. Despite the fancy naming, this activity is an exercise in brevity. Many of the people I know who participate in winter bathing are members of clubs with facilities along the coasts. If the sea freezes over in winter, they maintain a hole in the ice for their members. They have changing rooms and a sauna to retreat to. I'll have none of that pampering. I have a couple of preferred spots on Copenhagen Harbor, and I'll just roll up on my bike, strip down, and jump in. Well, depending on the water temperature, if it's just above freezing, I'll opt for the latter, descending into the water and submerging myself. Either way, it's a shock to my system. My breath catches in my throat, and once my head is above water again, my brain needs to kickstart the breathing mechanism. For a moment or two, I feel like Han Solo frozen in carbonite in The Empire Strikes Back. Just relax for a moment. You're free as a carbonite. In the dead of winter, that's the extent of it into the water and out again, quickly drying off and getting dressed, usually in a stiff, cold wind, back on the bike as quick as I can to start generating heat. If you've never tried this, you're probably wondering why humans even bother. But let me tell you, that quick dip is absolutely magical once you're done with it. I often describe it as an hour of Thai massage in 30 seconds. I feel it for the rest of the day. The nerves on my skin are electric. I feel energized. I've later read that winter bathing boosts your immune system, even over the long term. It releases endorphins since you're essentially submitting your body to pain. Your circulation improves since your blood is forced to the surface to warm the extremities. And repeated exposure helps us adapt to the cold. Your body also boosts estrogen and testosterone production, which impacts the libido. And a boosted libido increases confidence, self-esteem, and improves your mood. It helps relieve stress as well. Nature can be a sexy, badass dominatrix. Winter bathing is her dungeon. I'll miss descending into it. Safe word at the ready, although never used, to engulf myself in the cold but therapeutic waters. Number 10. Languages. When I was a kid and we played that game where we asked each other what superpower we would want, if we could choose one, I always rotated between invisibility and knowing every language in the world. The latter was confusing and amusing to the other kids, but I stuck to my guns. I thought it would be so cool. Both of my choices are intertwined, if you think about it. If you know the local language, you wear a cloak of invisibility and you blend in. Wherever I travel, I listen intently to the language, trying to wrap my ears and brain around the rhythm, flow, and melody of it. My brain instantly tries to interpret what is being said and looks for patterns in the words. 
I come armed with an above-average linguistic arsenal. Apart from the languages I speak, I seem to have an understanding, ranging from rudimentary to advanced, of many others. Living in the Soviet Union back in 1990, I picked up a lot of Russian in a hurry. The best way to learn a language is to be thrown into a place where nobody speaks your language and you're forced to learn. A linguistic baptism of fire. I promptly forgot most of my Russian after leaving, but I can still follow conversations in many Slavic languages, and a fair bit of it comes back when I work on projects in Russia. The same goes for the Romance languages. There are enough recognizable words to force my brain to latch onto conversations and try to figure them out, whether I want to or not. Despite wanting to so desperately possess that superpower as a kid, when I think about it, it sometimes feels like it might be a bit of a burden. You'd never be alone. Sometimes I just want to sit at a cafe in a foreign city and soak it all up while doing my own thinking. If there's a conversation at the next table, my brain starts to lean over and flirt with the other thoughts, words, and language. Hi, so you from around here? Just visiting? Nice, great. Oh, geez, sometimes I just want to be alone. That's when places like Asia, the Middle East, Greece, and Finland come in handy for me, personally. I can sit there surrounded by conversations and not have a clue what is being said. I am so gloriously ignorant that my brain doesn't stray. It isn't tempted to be unfaithful with other conversations. We can sit and have an enjoyable time together. Languages are like partners. No. Okay, actually, you know what? I think they're more like lovers. They're sexy and seductive, and the more time you spend with them, the better you get to know them and what they like you to do with them. All their kinks. So much more passion and satisfaction. Like in real life, long-distance relationships require more work. I forgot to text Russian in the morning after our time together, and she faded away. Cold shoulder, and fair enough. I didn't engage with Russian. I didn't have many opportunities to do so. Although I did just meet Icelandic on an app. I've been texting with her for about three months now. Things are looking promising. Although when you speak Danish, learning Icelandic is kind of like dating your second cousin. I had French in school for 11 out of 12 years. Then, later, I moved to France for the first time. And I couldn't language myself out of an oily bag of croissants. At first. I remember so clearly how, after a month or so, something went click. It was as though somebody lobbed a can of foie gras and smacked me in the head with it. All of a sudden, almost from one moment to the next, I was forming sentences and understanding conversations. What I thought were 11 wasted years turned out to be useful. Well, for the most part because classroom learning rarely updates for slang. There I was, thinking I was all clever, saying a sentence like, I don't know, je ne sais pas. But then I discovered that all the locals were just saying, je pas. As a child, I learned how to say, hello, how are you, in Danish. Good day, After 25 years of living in the old country, I've never heard anyone say that. Hey, vasa is much quicker and effective. Different people learn languages in different ways. Me? I've never been good at learning through classes or books. I need to be there, to hear it, to see the mimicry on people's faces when they speak it. I constantly ask people how to say this or that word, piecing together the puzzle in my head, trying out the new, strange sounds, like a parrot. I was handed one little linguistic pro tip back in the late 80s when I was attending theater school in L.A. One of my teachers was talking about how to tackle accents and dialects as an actor. He said that it also applied to speaking foreign languages. You should try to speak the language, however little of it you can, like a cartoon character, 
He used Pepe Le Pew from Looney Tunes as an example. Ah, the birth of a notion. Ah, the grand illusion. The goal was not to ridicule the language, not at all, merely to make yourself more understandable. It's wild how tiny bits of random advice stick with you your entire life. I still use this, and it works a treat. When my first child was on the way, my ex-wife and I made the no-brainer decision to practice bilingualism. I would speak English to him, and she would speak Danish. I started researching the best way to approach it, and I was surprised that most of the science and research was only a couple of decades old. We are still only at the tip of the iceberg in our understanding of the benefits of bi or multilingualism. There are more bilingual people in the world than monolingual, so it is quite bizarre that research is so late to this game. I've learned that a bilingual child will be, for whatever reason, better at math. They'll also be better at learning other languages. When a child is born, there are neurons connected to all the sounds that humans make. At around the age of three, the brain starts cutting the neurons to the sounds they've never heard. Here's one pro tip I hand out to friends who are having kids: if a child merely hears a language between birth and two or three years old, they'll have a much better chance of learning that language later in life because the neuron won't be severed. My kids have listened to Chinese films, Italian music, you name it, just in case. Parenting at its simplest. Then there are subtitles. The science about how it benefits learning language is really ramping up. If you live in a smaller European country, most TV and films are subtitled as opposed to dubbed, as is the case in the larger countries. You hear the original language and you read your own. It increases your ability to learn that language exponentially. So click on over to your Netflix settings and turn off the dubbing, and turn on the subtitles. The difference between large languages and small ones is also a source of fascination. When you come from English with all the words that it contains, even if it is a mongrel language that has stolen vocabulary all over the planet like a pickpocket, learning a language like Danish, for example, is an exercise in frugality. Danish has less than half the number of words as English has. It feels like you have to build a house with a rusty handsaw, a bunch of nails, and a rock for a hammer until you master it. Now, Danish is one of my primary languages, and I continue to find it charming. Sometimes even beautiful on a good day with a tailwind. It sounds like a Game of Thronesian beast that will rip out your throat, but it's a flirty little linguistic thing. It seduces you with its ripped six-pack of consonants and its nine orgasmic vowels. It's a Pornhub language that forces you to subscribe so you can get extra material. It starts out sounding simple, but it's just saving its complexity, depth, poetry, and yeah, demons until much later. Until it's too late to escape. Actually, if you're shopping for a language to learn, Danish isn't a bad bet. Sure, it's one of the hardest languages in Europe to learn. But once you've gotten deep enough, you get more languages for the price of one. It opens the door to Swedish, Norwegian, Faroese, Icelandic. Actually, they think that during the Viking Age a thousand years ago, we all spoke exactly the same language, and then the Swedes and Norwegians went all Muppet Show on us. Anyway, you also get some access to German and even Dutch. After you get over that deep throat gagging sound of Dutch, you start to tune in on many similar words. Danish is the gatekeeper to the language buffet. Languages and, by extension, word origins are a passion for me. You've probably figured that out by now. 
Looking over this 100 things list, this has got to rank high among all those things I'll miss when I'm dead. Not least because so much work has gone into learning languages, reading up on their development, remembering words and phrases and accents in my own language and others. And then, wham, you're gone and there's no one to talk to. Number 11, two hamburgers and a small fries. It's a bit of a weird habit, or even a vice, but it ain't going anywhere anytime soon. I have long had a predilection for walking into McDonald's, or on occasion Burger King, and ordering exactly two hamburgers and a small fries. It must be a vice because it feels so dirty. I generally have a healthy diet, but on occasion, you just need junk food. I know and respect this fact. I'll grab a falafel on occasion, but my go-to is those couple of burgers and fries. Most often on my way home from my local wine bar, but once in a while as a midday snack. Sometimes I'll consume them as I ride the last leg home on my bike, but I can also wait until I'm plopped down on my sofa. I like that it feels dirty every single time. As culinary vices go, this is probably not that bad. On the other hand, arriving in the dark void of death would be extra depressing if the first thing I saw were the golden arches. Number 12. My Toolbox I lament the fact that I possess all manner of screws, nails, raw plugs, bolts, undefined bits of metal that never ended up being used. They were brought forth by important-looking machines in big factories somewhere to serve useful purposes, and I let them down. They never contributed to forming a larger structure that was functional, practical, or elegant, the basic principles of Danish design. I looked at each one of them at some point, and I thought, hmm, I should save that. It might come in handy one day. And yet, there they all are, in my toolbox, in the dark of the cupboard in the hallway. So much wasted potential. I'm going to miss the toolbox itself as well. Having it makes me feel strangely adult, which is not something I normally value. The structure I lack in my creative life, I make up for by having organized not only the toolbox, but also all the tools, meticulously positioned in the cupboard for ease of use and access. I just went over there and stared into the cupboard, and I felt a pang of regret that there are some wrenches and screwdrivers that haven't seen any action for years. But I am proud at my organizational skill set. Hey, I make stuff quite often. It's just that I'm not exploiting the full potential of my collection of tools and metal bits. Then there's the corner in my bedroom where I stack pieces of wood that, hmm, might come in handy one day. More wasted potential. I guess that after I'm gone, someone will sort through the toolbox and keep the stuff they deem useful and chuck the rest into recycling. I guess I can hope that my collection of metal can be melted down to make something that will have a function for somebody somewhere else. Number 13, biting my nails. I ain't proud of this one. It's probably my main vice, but hey, who doesn't like a good vice? They're there for a reason. Everyone has bitten their nails at some point in their life. Some people, like me, do it more often than they should. Most often, I catch myself doing it well into a chewing session, completely unaware that I even started. To be frank, gnawing like a rodent on an errant bit of nail is somehow soothing. It's just a bit of body gardening, isn't it? Trimming the hedge, as it were. It's oddly satisfying and seems to provide me with a distraction or a bit of an escape. 
It's pleasurable and relaxing. I made the mistake of looking it up, and I discovered that I have the splendidly named condition of onychophagia, which sounds both ominous and like the name of a goalkeeper for a national team somewhere in Eastern Europe. The science about why people do it is largely undecided. Most people who bite their nails state that they wish they didn't, and I am certainly one of them. I've tried unsuccessfully to stop and have had phases where I instead manically cleaned and filed my nails, which was so much more like hard work than nibbling them. At the end of the day, it is what it is, and I'm going to miss it when I'm dead. Number 14. That Wind Before the Rain I recall that it was summer. I was cycling down a long, straight street in Copenhagen. Istigel is the name. When a warm wind rose up behind me and I felt my speed increase. A tailwind is the faithful sidekick for anyone on a bike anywhere. And this was a strong one. I looked over my shoulder and was amazed to see a curtain of rain advancing towards me, perfectly perpendicular to the street. It was as ominous as it was awesome. It was still maybe 400 meters behind me, preceded by the wind that was boosting my bike. In a second, I knew the race was on. I rose off the saddle and started pumping the pedals, trying to outrun the rain. I kept checking back, and while the wall of water was gaining, I seemed to be buying myself some time. The main problem was that the central train station was at the end of the street. I would have to do a dog's leg of about 200 meters to get back on a parallel street. But I was plugged into that wind, man. I raced the rain without having any destination or any plan to avoid it just trying to see if I could. I couldn't. It gradually caught up with me. And I mean gradually. Large, heavy raindrops first landing on my back, then my head, and finally the curtain passed me, leaving me enveloped in the warm summer storm. Let me be clear when I say that I won't miss wind generally. As a child of the prairies and a long-term resident of Copenhagen, wind is often an adversary. I'll make an exception for this one type of wind. The wind before the rain, or even better, a storm, is the intro sequence to a film. It sets the tone, establishes characters, and genre. If I was nature, I'd go exclusively for the sudden approach with regards to my meteorological repertoire. The out-of-the-blue opening of the skies that cause all creatures to say WTF every single time. My kids, for example, know to expect me to regularly scare them out of their wits here in our home, although they never expect it when I actually do it. It never gets old. But nature is largely a polite entity and provides many clues as to its intentions. When I was a child, I was fascinated by First Nations cultures and their deep understanding of and respect for nature. Unfortunately, I have limited chances to put my ear to the ground and determine that the buffalo are 10 kilometers out and heading this way. But I can feel that wind before the storm, and the boy inside me is glad. Number 15, waving. It was November 1992, and I was aboard a train heading from Almaty, Kazakhstan to Urumqi in western China. The landscape was flat and endless. A tiny blob of houses appeared as I was looking out of the open window. The cold air reddened my face and made my nose run. But when you're on a train for days, you accept it. The houses sat on a small hill next to the tracks, so the doorways were level with the window of the train. Even in this vast, wide-open expanse, 
the citizens still cordon off a garden area with rickety fences that betray their nomadic roots. Sitting against a fence nearest the track was a small boy of perhaps 12 years of age, with a fine-looking dog sitting attentively between his legs. He was wearing a blue woolen hat and quilted red jacket, and both he and the dog were watching the train with interest. It was an event, this weekly passing of the train, and he wasn't going to miss a second of it. As I passed him, I waved from the freedom of the open window. It was a spontaneous gesture, but he saw my hand suddenly and his face lit up in an impossible smile as he shot up his arm enthusiastically in response, waving and then holding it there with palm outstretched, as did I, until we were both out of sight. That simple wave and that shared smile remains one of my fondest enduring snapshots of all my travels. In that exchange between two people in the world who could not be more different, there was an overwhelming feeling of hope and confidence that everything in the world was going to be okay. I can still see his face like I have known him all my life. But let's be honest. Waving is more often than not rather goofy. Think about the ending of your last Zoom meeting. Somebody waves, there's one in every crowd, and everybody else follows suit. There's no structure to this non-verbal gesture between humans. It varies from culture to culture, sure, and it's even offensive to show your hand in some places, but even where it's a positive gesture, it is often a bit awkward. A handshake is what it is. It can be awkward by lasting too long or not long enough, or one person squeezing harder than the other, but there is a clear dramaturgy to it, as well as a function. Two humans who need to signal something specific to one another. If I see you outside on the street from my window and you see me, yeah, we'll wave. I see you, hi. I see you too, hi. All we are doing is confirming our visuals. We know each other, so that seems like a normal thing to do, even if it lacks a reason. But it's still kind of strange. But even despite my amazing experience on that train back in 1992, waving at strangers? What is up with that? Especially when boats and ships are involved. I can stand on a bridge in Copenhagen and watch the long, low canal boats pass underneath, filled with a hundred tourists. Invariably, one of them will wave. To my irritation, I respond. You can't not wave back. I observe other strangers doing it and am constantly fascinated by it. Even the famously reserved Nordic peoples will summon up the nerve to give you a wave. I had an office once next to the entrance to Copenhagen Harbor, and cruise ships would lumber in each morning. The people on deck were so far away I could barely make them out. But there they were, waving. Yep, I waved back too, and soon a whole bunch of strangers who will never see each other ever again are pumping their arms back and forth. I googled, why do we wave? And it's clear that researchers are still trying to figure this one out. It's apparently a new thing, this waving at each other lark. A spin-off on the old military salute, which itself only dates to Europe in the 18th century. Maybe that's why we haven't figured out the system just yet. Waving remains dorky and lovely all at once. And I'm going to miss it. Everything you see, everyone you know, will die. So let's make a deal to live a little. By the way, I'm waving at you right now. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. You've been listening to The 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. Time is running out, so I'll get to work on Episode 3. Wish me luck with that. This episode is brought to you in part by The Wonder of Human Evolution. The music is by Phil Creamer and Mikhail Gull. Catch you next time. 
Thanks for listening.